We start this episode of This Week in the CLE on a down note with the passing of two people that we've learned of overnight. One is a Cleveland police detective who was gunned down last night in the car with uh, what we've learned as an informant. And uh, sounds like he had a sterling record. It's a sad day in Cleveland for the loss of a veteran officer. We also learned of the passing of longtime sports editor Roy Hewitt, who had a record of getting women in key roles in sports coverage in a time when that just wasn't happening. The Plain Dealer was the rare newspaper that had women as the lead sports reporters on both its basketball and its football teams. It was sad to hear as his passing, he retired some years ago. So it's the news podcast discussion wrapping up another week. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Murnowski, and we have some things to talk about before the holiday weekend. You ready to start? Ready. Let's do it. Okay. Is the best way to detect a coronavirus outbreak actually by turning to the toilet? Jane Cahoon, we actually spotted this idea months ago happening in another country and did a story about it. Right after we did that story, questions came up with the governor about, are you going to do this? This sounds brilliant. You can see the coronavirus breakouts a week before testing shows it. And he said yes, but (laughs) nothing much (laughs) happened since then. But now there's news. So what's the latest on detecting coronavirus by looking at crap? (laughs) Well, here's your load of crap. After months and months of working on this, DeWine did announce on Thursday that state and federal officials have set up a wastewater monitoring network in 22 Ohio cities. And as you said, this this can detect COVID, you know, something like seven days ahead of time so they can prepare for these outbreaks and get ahead of them. So this is going to happen at sewage treatment plants in Toledo, Akron, Dayton, Sandusky, Newark, and Lancaster. And um, sampling efforts have already been underway in Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. So as we know, as you said, wastewater monitoring has helped. Uh, for instance, at the University of Arizona found a potential outbreak last, last month. And the thing we reported earlier was, was Dutch scientists found the virus in a local sewage system in March, like three weeks before the Netherlands confirmed its first case of the coronavirus. Yeah, this is a it's a great early warning system because a lot of times they're kind of caught off guard. And I can imagine that setting up a network to study this because you're really looking at the DNA in the sewage uh, does take time, especially if you're trying to be methodical about it. Uh, It's nice to hear that they've been hard at work at building that system. It seems like a system that you'd want to have in place all the time to detect all sorts of things because you know, right. you want to see outbreaks of the flu and you want to see outbreaks of other kinds of of viruses. This is the key one. And we'll have to see how this works. If they would have had it up and running a few weeks ago, maybe we would have spotted all these college outbreaks a <laughs> right. little bit earlier. Can I just um, say to, I think it's RNA, not DNA. I am really bad at science, but I'm pretty sure it's RNA from the virus that they detect. Right. They're looking for fragments of it. It's Yeah, they're doing the genetic checking, but it's the RNA fragments of the virus that they're finding. Okay, we'll have to see if we get any early warnings about that. I'm sure if they have it, the governor would want to talk about it because he's a bit of a geek about this stuff and I think would get a kick out of seeing it early. It's this week in the CLE.
Why are Northeast Ohio housing advocates both grateful for and worried about President Donald Trump's latest moratorium on evictions? Chris Ranowski, I would have thought this would have been seen pretty much as a universal good news story because it would mean we're not going to deal with the big homeless problem, at least through the end of the year. But it comes with some ominous warnings, too, that the, that the advocates gave our reporter. So what, what are they worried about? Right. So it's good news that'll get us past the election. But once the election <laughs> is over, there actually could be some problems. So if, in case you don't know, um, there was a kind of surprise announcement earlier this week, I believe it was on Tuesday, that the, I guess the CDC said, you know, there aren't going to be any more evictions throughout the end of the year. Which sounds like great news on its face. And and really it is kind of a it is great news to have some something happen at a national level that is at least gonna keep people in their homes for a little while. What isn't in this though, there there isn't a funding component, which means that there could be some issues for landlords and people who own rental properties. And so what's going to happen in December when this moratorium ends is that all of these people who are renting are still going to owe back rent. And so it's going to create this period of time in in our country where all of these people are going to suddenly owe two or three or four months of back rent if they can't afford it through this period. So in one respect, it, it is going to keep people in their homes. But in another respect, it just means that these people are going to have to come up with more money at the end of the year if they can't afford their rent now. You said two or three months, but it could be a good bit more than that, right? Since this, the moratoriums actually began months ago, you could be looking at a renter with six or seven months of yeah. rent. Are the advocates basically asking for some financial support then to help people get out of that hole? Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there are proposals up and, you know, that kind of run the gamut, whether it's, you know, are we going to bail out landlords specifically? Are we going to give money directly to renters so they can give it to landlords? Whatever happens here, it's, you know, in order to have like a, a, a positive outcome, it's going to require some investment. You know, the county, you know, through a nonprofit here, I mean, we're they're, they're offering rental assistance here and there's still money available for it. But, you know, as, as we've seen with stuff like unemployment, that stuff runs out and, you know, people get really stressed out and get really nervous about it. Um, some courts are starting to, to halt eviction cases as a result of this, just as a kind of wait and see. But, you know, and in, in, in talking to Eric Isaac, who is the reporter on this story, there is some speculation that there might be a lawsuit that challenges this because I think landlords are really going to be up in arms about this because it, it means they may have to go a whole financial quarter without, you know, any additional money from their renters and it'll be perfectly legal for the renters to not do it. All right. Let's t- let's talk about this, because whenever I make the argument I'm about to make, you throw caveats back at me. <laughs> but a lot of landlords buy apartment buildings and properties as an investment mm-hmm. with the idea that the rent they collect not only pays for upkeep on the building, but it also pays the mortgage payments. So for the landlords to go most of the year without getting rent because of an eviction moratorium, could cripple them. They could end up losing their properties. And it's a it's a very serious issue for the landlords that has not been addressed by this. And I do wonder if the federal government has the power to do this. I'd love to see what the court said. But okay, go ahead, throw your caveats at me. Oh, I, w- I was just going to say, you know, that it's, you know, real estate is a risk like anything else. You know, you invest in something with the hopes that you're going to get a return on it. And 
you know, it, sometimes you are confronted with unknowns. And so it, I, yeah, I mean, I do feel bad for people who, who get into the landlord business, who want to make extra money, who buy a house that they pay for itself. And it'll be a great thing to have down the road, but this happens. This is one of those unknown things that you, that we run into as a society and it's unfortunate, but it's, I, I think the issue here is the renters aren't at fault here. You know, this is not one of those situations where you can go, well, these are just lazy people that don't want to work. No, this is a, a recession. This is a global pandemic that, that put people at home and, and, and cut their incomes and but people are going to get evicted for no fault of their own. But landlords aren't at fault either. So, no. I mean, this remedy and all year, the remedy has been aimed exclusively at the renters, right? With no, with no eye toward the landlord. Well, but if you and, make the renters whole, you make the landlords whole. That's the thing. Is is that? But they're, but they're not making them whole. I mean, right now, all that's there is if you don't pay rent, you won't be evicted. There's nothing making anybody whole. And so, uh, that the, all I'm suggesting is that that if you're going to look out for renters, there ought to be something. That helps the landlords because otherwise, the rent. It's, it's <laughs> a, but it's a financial crisis for everybody, right? right? I mean, it's you know the renters end up owing six months of rent, and who who ever has the resources for that? They end up probably declaring bankruptcy. The landlords end up in foreclosure, and the whole thing is a mess that we really haven't solved with the CDC moratorium. But it's also, but you got to understand, like if you're a home, like say if you're a homeowner and your house gets foreclosed on, what happens? You bank takes it back and you go on your way. You know, it gets much more complicated when it's a landlord renter situation. You know, then you get eviction hearings, you get, it's a much more complicated process because renters also have rights. And, you know, there are laws that, that basically tell landlords there's things, you know, you can't just throw people out, you know, willy nilly. I mean, there's a process. And so it's actually, you know, I mean, it's also, it, Getting somebody out of an apartment is is harder than a, a bank coming in and just taking your house over when you stop paying for your, your mortgage. Well, and and it's particularly hard when there's a moratorium against it. <laughs> anyway, we got to move Correct. on. It's this week in the CLE. What's the latest word on how hard the coronavirus has hit area hotels? Lord Johnson, if we went back over the the episodes of this podcast over the last six months, we would find a long litany of businesses and industries that have been hit hard by the coronavirus, but hotels are a, a special case. The numbers are staggering what's happened to them. What is the latest on the numbers? Yeah, it is. They've gotten hit really hard. Um, the hotel occupancy, which is the percentage of hotel rooms filled during any given time period, was 41.3% for the six-county greater Cleveland region ending August 29th. For downtown Cleveland, it was way worse. It was 31.7%. And compare that to a year ago when it was 71%. And these are all down from national numbers, which are about 50%. But hotels and cities are doing particularly bad because they depend a lot on business travel and convention traffic. And that obviously is not happening right now. The cool thing is that our travel writer, Susan Glazer, I think it was last weekend, decided to stay in a downtown Cleveland hotel and play Cleveland tourist for a set of stories that she's published and will appear soon in print and had a glorious time. It was the, She went to restaurants and she checked out some of the tourist sites. She met other tourists. And so for people that are a little bit daring that will risk going to a hotel, you know, you can probably get a good deal and have a good time, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. She said she had a glorious time. She even watched an Indians game on a big screen TV outside. So she she has some rules. She's not going to eat inside in restaurants. I feel exactly the same way, but she's fine with being outside. She said most people were wearing their masks. She was walking down the flats and she felt completely safe. And she said it was a glorious time in downtown Cleveland and she's really missed it since we are not in our building downtown this summer. So in this, this um, the travel industry has had some bright spots, places where you can go to be alone. Um, those places are doing pretty well. It's just the cities are having a, a tougher time. And normally this is summer vacation season. So the business travel that's not happening, that's going to hit even harder in September. I do wonder whether the rash of carjackings and violence in Cleveland would persuade some people to stay away. This has been one of the most violent summers we've seen in a while. And some of it, every once in a while, happens downtown. Mostly it's out in the neighborhoods, but we'll have to see if that has an impact. This week in the CLE, have we been able to get a clearer picture on why and when the Ohio Secretary of State's office decided to remove hyphens from the names in voter registrations, and does any of it make sense? Jane Cahoon, after we talked about this story yesterday, Secretary of State's office and others were nibbling around the periphery, trying to make it sound like it's not a big deal. But for reasons that we'll discuss in a moment, it is a big deal. But let's go through (laughs) what we've learned since our discussion on Thursday morning. Well, we got a little more clarity from the Secretary of State's office. They they went out of their way to let us know that the practice of removing hyphens and other punctuation marks from people's uh, voter registrations, their names on the voter registrations, dates back to 2015 under John Husted, who was then the Secretary of State, and now he's the Lieutenant Governor. However, the current Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, has continued this practice and, in fact, issued the same instructions in a manual that he issued last year to county boards of elections. I should say I made a mistake yesterday in saying 2018, it was 2019. But in any event, Frank LaRose has continued this practice. And according to his spokesman, the move was to ensure data uniformity, given that voter records are compiled and maintained by the individual, 88 individual county boards of elections. and Let me, let me, let me stop you right there just for a second to clarify mm-hmm. something. Andrew Tobias asked them why this was done for the story he did a couple of days ago, and they wouldn't explain it. They only explained it in complaining that we had the wrong year in a note to me, not even to Andrew. So it was a real clear case of lack of response that led to some of this confusion. They, anyway, they, in fairness, they did say something about data uniformity, which which Andrew had in his first story. But as far as like the why, you know, elaborating on any of that, we've never gotten that. So these, as I said, these records are maintained individually. And the spokesman also noted that LaRose favors centralizing those records. But the the thing of it is here, yes, it's about uniformity, but it's not uniform when you look at other state agencies like the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, which does include hyphens in driver's licenses. And as we all know, many people use their driver's licenses as ID at the polls. So beyond that, the voter boards get notified by the BMV when people change addresses and things. So there's a there's actually a a structural linkage between the two databases. Correct. And that, that gets it what they're not 
addressing, right? I mean, so we learned about this because a woman wrote us a note. She had moved to Lorain County and the BMV notified her election boards of her move. When the elections board updated her record, they took out the hyphen and then they sent her a note saying, your, your name doesn't match the BMV. She didn't do anything. They took the hyphen out and then they sent her a notice saying, your name doesn't match. We have, you have to fix this. That's a problem. And nobody is addressing that problem. There is, if you're going to make it uniform, why not make it uniform with the database that you're matching up against? It was very annoying yesterday to have all the buzz in the periphery without addressing this head on. And everybody keeps telling us there'll be no effect on voting, which I hope right. not. And, right. you know, there hasn't been, but we'll see, right? I mean, the ACLU did say, and they're they're suing the state in another matter involving signature matching on absentee ballots. They They said they haven't uncovered any problems as a, as a result of this. But, you know, in other states, voter rights advocates have said that small discrepancies are being used against people, like using a nickname instead of a full name or using a hyphenated name. And there have been troubles reported in other states. But here in Ohio, they're saying this is not going to be a problem. Jane, what if the woman who wrote to us somehow missed the postcard, right? And didn't, you know, yet she had 10 days to rectify it. So what if she misses the postcard? When she goes to vote, what happens? I Both Houston and LaRose have created a problem where there wasn't a problem. And why not solve it better? Why not talk about this in a, in a more thorough way and, and solve it so that you're you have uniformity between your verification database and your own database. I, I will, we'll see. The I hope. elections director, I think it was the Lorraine County person, said that even if she didn't respond to that notice, she still shouldn't have a problem. So Then, then why send the notice? Why create <laughs> the anxiety? Right. Look, every, there's so much anxiety. I mean, yesterday, Donald Trump recommended people try to vote twice to test the system. There's so much anxiety going on about voting. Why needlessly create more anxiety for people? The voter we heard from clearly had some. So anyway, we've addressed it. Time to move on. This week in the CLE. Why does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine say he is fully confident that any coronavirus vaccine approved by the White House will be safe when so many scientists are worried it will be rushed into production without proper testing? Chris Murnowski, so we now know who the one person in America that is fully confident about the vaccine is, is Mike DeWine. Yeah, I, I was we this was our question. Laura Hancock asked yesterday, hey, you're worried about the safety of Ohioans. What do you say? And it, it caught him a little bit short, but then he gave full throated approval to whatever the White House says. Yeah, he said that he is confident that federal f- officials would not release a coronavirus vaccine before one is ready despite the public pressure that the president has uh, put on, you know, the scientific community to get him a vaccine before the campaign or before the election this November. So, you know, speaking during the briefing on Thursday, he said that he was confident that when a vaccine for the virus, which is currently being fast-tracked, is released, he thinks it will be done with proper safety in mind. However, the rapid pace at which the vaccine is in development has raised a lot of questions over whether it can actually be delivered before November 3rd, before we go out to vote. He expressed some some confidence in the federal government and the process, the vaccination approval process. 
you know, we've already seen in other countries where they've sort of just kind of skipped wholesale portions of the vaccination approval process. So I, I don't know what's what's going to happen here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but you know, we're we're being told something maybe in October is when we're going to get it. But I I don't know about the the three of you, but I am not in a hurry to to get that particular one. No, and we're hearing that universally, <laughs> that people are, if this comes out before Election Day, people are going to be suspicious. He did hedge a little bit by saying that, listen to the scientists when it comes out. I think most people would probably ask their personal doctor, should I get mm-hmm. this or should I not get it? And I imagine most doctors, if this has not been put through all of the testing protocols, and, and, and say don't know. do it. I, I'm going to try to be as diplomatic about this as I can be, but you know we are not in what is known as the most listening to scientist period in American history. <laughs> so, so you know it's uh, this is a time when we have been told to take hydrochloroquine, drink bleach. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of snake oil going around. Yeah, but and, Chris, and, when it comes time to sticking that needle in your arm, I think a lot of people who who might be using the talking points of their respective parties are going to think twice. I mean, there's been in the past trouble with uh, vaccines and medicines that were put into public use before they were tested and didn't go well. So I think people will be skeptical. I was just surprised at how hardy DeWine's endorsement of the White House was in this matter because so many others are worried. I would have more confidence in the process if there wasn't some shenanigans going on with the FDA and the CDC and, you know, the people that are supposed to be the overseers of this process of getting, you know, vaccines approved for the consumption by the American public. But, you know, as we've seen with everything, this is is become a political issue now and there's some gamesmanship going on in the background so you have to keep kind of one eye on that while you know you keep another eye on the president and it's unfortunate that you know we're in this in in this weird position where the the politics of it and the election part of it are, are factoring in as a variable as to when we're going to see it and whether it might be effective okay you're listening to this week in the cle Has the rush to adopt dogs from animal shelters that hit during the beginning of the pandemic continued? Laura Johnston, a whole lot of people suddenly at home without lots of their their co-workers around, went out and got dogs. And so for a while, it was very hard to get them. Has that trend continued? It depends where you are looking for your dog, but you know that, you know, if you saw a cute furry face on Facebook, by the time you put put down your name saying you were interested, that puppy was probably already gone. For some shelters and rescues, that demand has remained sky high. The Cuyahoga County Animal Shelter told Cameron Fields, our new reporter, that he has, they haven't had more than 30 animals in its care at any given time this summer. They normally have about 112. And so unless a dog has specific needs, the shelter can get them a adopted within a day or two. People are coming into the shelter, sitting on chairs at 8 a.m., waiting for them to open at 1030. So people want dogs. The Northeast Ohio's SPCA in Parma has seen less demand. They have about 50 to 60 dogs now. The Humane Society of Summit County has 40 to 45 dogs. So look outside the county animal shelter if you are looking for a dog. We're all dog lovers here. This is good news. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has the increase in coronavirus cases because of college students congregating on or near campuses turned some counties in the state red in Mike DeWine's color-coded coronavirus map? 
Jane Cahoon, the college students are acting irresponsibly all over the country, creating outbreaks left and right. What did we learn from the new map? Well, we learned that uh, one example is Butler County, home of Miami University, which has had 704 cases since it began tracking on August 21st. And the university's president says he attributes this to off-campus parties and other gatherings. Apparently, they haven't returned to campus yet, and they're really watching that. But we've also seen spikes associated with the University of Dayton in Montgomery County, which remains red. And then there have been a number of cases in counties that still managed to stay in that orange status, but have seen spikes, including the University of Cincinnati in Hamilton County and Ohio State in, in Franklin County. Governor Mike DeWine said in at his Thursday briefing, this was interesting, that 35% of coronavirus cases in the past week were in the 18 to 22 age group. So that's right. It's it's we've talked about this pretty much <laughs> incessantly that you bring the college kids back. They're going to drink. They're going to do dumb things. The the Miami U president was interesting because he was I mean, he seemed like he, he was very much in tune with what was going on. And they're planning to have in classroom classes begin in a few weeks. But you could definitely hear between the lines that that he's thinking about not doing that. Laura Johnston, what's wrong with your alma mater? They're not behaving. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I was down there two weeks ago. I visited for the first time in about seven years. Um, and it was on a weekday. The campus was completely quiet. You know, like you're just walking around. The buildings are empty. But then you go to uptown and you see the, the houses and they all have names around Miami where the upperclassmen have rented out and they're like sitting in a big circle on the lawn. And it's this idea. I think that kids are like, well, I'm not going to really get sick and I want to go back to college. You know, I really, this is fun. I want to be here. So they were allowed to move in, even if the underclassmen couldn't. And they are congregating. And this is not just happening at Miami. Cameron Fields had a great story. <laughs> All right. Stop being so defensive. <laughs> Could so- I say something else? Uh, part of this steep increase is also due to testing. A lot of students are required to be tested before they come back to campus. So they're turning up, you know, some asymptomatic cases and so forth. So those might not necessarily have occurred, you know, near the campus. Yeah, but I mean, they still have it. So a Bloomberg reporter asked DeWine what he said was a very simple question to ask and a very difficult question to answer. What can be done to stop college students from being irresponsible? (laughs) And did did DeWine have much of an answer to that question? He said, it's certainly not something the governor can do. But (laughs) he he did say that he thinks universities are, are really doing a good job with this. He noted that kids this age can feel invincible. And he made his usual plea, like, please, if you want a fall semester, you need to be really careful. But, but Sab Jane, how can you argue universities are doing a good job when these outbreaks are exploding? I would argue that doing a good job would have been not having the kids come back, right? If you really want to true. stop the outbreak, don't bring them back. Do remote learning like they're doing in in uh, K through 12, all through Cuyahoga County. But we so, just pointed out they're doing remote learning at in Miami and they still came back. Yeah. So you can't tell people where they can live. And I think he meant more they're doing a good job, like keeping on top of it with testing and and so forth. Yeah, we'll see. It it was interesting to see those counties turn red. Uh, We'll have to see what happens as the uh, 
school year goes on. I'll be interested to see if Miami actually does start classes. You could see he's he's nervous about what happens next. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for a very long week of news, and now we're on to the long weekend. Do you guys have any plans, or is it mostly just kind of rest up and get ready to come back strong on Tuesday? <laughs> I'm going to that alpaca farm that I've seen lots of people post about. So, And I told Kristen Davis, our, who handles our photographers, that we need to go take pictures of these cute llamas and alpacas uh, as stress relief for people. Okay, there you go. Anybody else? <laughs> just enjoying what's supposed to be great weather. Yeah. Yeah, we're having a cookout, not a big cookout, just we're having my girlfriend's parents are coming over and we're going to sit out in the driveway and distance and try to at least socialize for a little bit. So, Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. It's always great to have a conversation with you all. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We will be off on Monday, back on Tuesday.